sad are you, own boy? Which sad are you, own oh, my lord? Which sad are you, own boy? Which sad are you, own oh, my lord? See, before I draw the line, let me welcome you close to all the folks who knew Obama, so the people of hopes gave the money to suckers while our community's still poor. Withdrew the troops, but started another war, colonizing, terrorizing, creating the oil crisis, so they can make a killer, no food and gas prices. Prisons is filling, they trying to lock up the future. Militarized borders and control of computers. Want a stupid bump of music that ain't healthy for the shortest. Privatizing schools and policemen in the hallways can't be dormant. I'm a woke and rise. Up, be ready, brought the family with us, and we hold the machetes. Riding the fence, riding the fence. Too many people be riding the fence. Yeah, you say you ready for war, but are you convinced? I'm not convinced. Rebellion. Fractures in America deepen after the murder of George Floyd. Will taking the knee, removing some statues, and charging four policemen be enough to dampen the protests that have rocked the imperialist heartlands? On the 25th of May, an African American man was murdered by the US police. George Floyd. A 46-year-old man was arrested in Minneapolis, Minnesota, after he was accused by a local store employee of paying for cigarettes with a counterfeit $20 bill. 17 minutes after the first police car arrived at the scene, Mr. Floyd was unconscious, having been pinned beneath the weight of three police officers with one officer, Derek Chauvin, kneeling forcefully upon his neck, pushing his whole body weight down upon his trachea and larynx for almost nine minutes, while onlookers filmed the incidents in growing horror and disbelief. The last minute of this suffocating act of restraint, a standard police procedure that has led many such cases of positional asphyxia, occurred after emergency medical services had arrived on scene. At first, George Floyd called out for help, for his mother. Then he became sickeningly limp and unresponsive. Still, his attackers, serene in the protection offered by their uniforms and the law, continue to inflict injury, sublimely calm and unconcerned as to the foul and unjustified act of murder they were committing. George Floyd subsequently suffered a respiratory and cardiac arrest, whilst being conveyed to hospital where he was pronounced dead on arrival. Video footage of the murder showed that Mr. Floyd was not aggressive towards police and did not resist arrest. He was entirely compliant. What the footage does show is that the arresting officers repeatedly ignored his pleas and those of bystanders that he couldn't breathe. So blatant was the murder and so overwhelming the public anger that Minneapolis Police Department was forced to sack all four police officers involved in the arrest the following day. Separate autopsy reports, released by independent and county medical examiners, agreed in ruling that Mr. Floyd's death was a homicide attributable to the violent methods of restraint used upon him, but they differed in part on the cause. The state autopsy insisted that underlying health conditions and intoxicants may have contributed to Mr. Floyd's death in a thinly veiled attempt to cover up this graphically documented and widely witnessed state murder. Derek Chauvin, filmed with his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck, has now been charged with second-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. The three other officers involved, J. Alexander Quang, Tu Chow, and Thomas Lane, have been charged with aiding and abetting murder. At this time, they intend to plead not guilty to their crime, and the prospects of a murder conviction are slim. According to NBC News, between 2005 to 19, quote, 
98 non-federal law enforcement officers have been arrested in connection with fatal on-duty shootings, according to the Police Integrity Research Group's data. To date, only 35 of these officers have been convicted of a crime, often a lesser offence such as manslaughter or negligent homicide rather than murder. Only three officers have been convicted of murder during this period and seen their convictions stand. Another 22 officers were acquitted in a jury trial and nine were acquitted during a bench trial decided by a judge. Ten other cases were dismissed by a judge or a prosecutor and in one instance no true bill, a legal procedure to dismiss charges against a defendant when the grand jury does not find enough evidence to charge them with violating the law was returned from a grand jury." Unquote. The initial response to Mr Floyd's killing was the usual cover-up after a police murder with none of the officers involved charged or arrested. But as the amateur video footage of his death went viral on social media and anger and frustration erupted into spontaneous civil unrest. Protests began on the 26th of May in Minneapolis and quickly spread into hundreds of US cities in all 50 states. Hundreds of thousands of enraged workers took to the streets demanding justice for George Floyd and the arrest of the officers involved. Such was the scale of unrest that the state struggled to maintain control. In extraordinary scenes on the 28th of May, officers were forced to flee in a convoy from a Minneapolis police precinct, which was later torched by angry protesters. In Washington, D.C., on the 29th of May, more than 50 Secret Service agents were injured in clashes with protesters, and President Donald Trump was forced to seek shelter in a bunker underneath the White House. Whilst much has been made by politicians and the media of acts of violence, looting and arson, the protests have in fact been overwhelmingly peaceful. The response of the police to peaceful protests, meanwhile, has been to brutalise and intimidate demonstrators off the streets. Video footage has revealed officers using batons, tear gas, pepper spray and rubber bullets against protesters, bystanders and journalists, without warning and without provocation. The US Press Freedom Tracker reported at least 125 violations of press freedom in the first three days of the protests, including 20 arrests. One particularly gratuitous act involved the arrest of an entire CNN crew by black uniformed and gas-masked officers in full riot gear without even the pretense of an explanation or justification while they were broadcasting live on national television. If this is the treatment of the free press, which is in reality a most powerful and vocal section of the US establishment, it doesn't take much imagination to conceive of the scale of violent repression meted out to the average worker involved in the protests, particularly if the workers were black or Hispanic. To contextualise the scale of repression, at least 11,000 protesters were arrested in the first eight days following Mr Floyd's murder compared to the 9,000 arrests in Hong Kong during an entire year of US-backed political destabilization and street violence. President Trump has responded to the protests with his usual bluster, referring to protesters as professional anarchists, violent mobs, arsonists, looters, criminals, rider rioters and Antifa, blaming the far left for the violence Trump bizarrely claimed he was going to designate Antifa a terrorist organisation, 
something which he doesn't even have the authority to do so, and is in any case an impossibility since Antifa is a loosely applied political label that can hardly be described even as a movement, and certainly is not an organisation with members or a leadership. On the 1st of June, Trump threatened to deploy active duty military personnel onto American streets by invoking the Insurrection Act of 1807, as was done by George H. Bush during the Los Angeles uprising that followed the acquittal of the police officers who had savagely beaten Rodney King in 1992. More than 17,000 troops of the National Guard were deployed across 23 states. In Washington, D.C. itself, Trump deployed nine Black Hawk military helicopters and thousands of National Guard troops from several states alongside 1,600 military police and active duty combat troops from the 82nd Airborne Division who received written orders to equip themselves with bayonets. During a week of conflicting orders, during which Trump demanded a deployment of 10,000 troops to Washington, D.C., the extent of public outrage at the violent murder of George Floyd and the subsequent violent intent and behavior of state forces combined with public support for the protesters' aims and the peaceful nature of the protests eventually led to the withdrawal of troops. It seems that Trump's enemies amongst the ruling class are using the Black Lives Matter protests to attempt to oust him from office. Large sections of the ruling class loathe him, not only because he is a source of instability, stumbling from one political crisis to another, but because Trump cannot be relied upon by the US imperial elite to wage the right wars or support the right interests. Five retired four-star generals, Dempsey, Kelly, Mullen, Mattis and Allen were given a platform by media outlets to criticise Trump for his proposed use of the military on American soil, with each accusing him of sowing division. More than 280 former national security officials found the time to sign their names to a letter criticising Trump's aggressive approach to the protests. Trump is making a political gamble that his blusterous demands for law and order will shore up his support in advance of the upcoming presidential election, and his popularity has dipped significantly in recent months owing to his handling of the health crisis combined with the terrible toll being taken by the economic crash. Quote, the Trump campaign has hit turbulence five months from election day. Earlier this year, Mr. Trump was riding higher on an apparently strong economy and soaring stock market bubble following his impeachment trial acquittal. Now, he faces multiple crises that cannot be solved by a tweet. The coronavirus death toll has topped 100,000 and 40 million Americans have lost their jobs and he is struggling to make the case for his re-election. A national outcry against the systemic racism and rapidly shifting public opinion on the issue have already undermined the appeal of the president's nativist rhetoric among crucial independent voters. Mr. Biden has an average national lead of eight points, according to Real Clear Politics. He is also ahead in many swing states that Mr. Trump won in 2016, including Wisconsin, Florida, Pennsylvania and Arizona. Mr. Trump has only a very narrow lead in Texas, a state that has not voted for a Democrat since Jimmy Carter won the White House in 1976, unquote. Meanwhile, the Democrat Party, 
also with eyes on the presidential election in November, has pinned all the blame for the unrest on Trump. The fact that the majority of violence meted out against protesters has occurred in blue states with Democrat governors and in cities with Democrat mayors seems to have eluded them. The civil unrest that has burst onto American streets since the death of Mr. Floyd is interesting, because historically, protests, rioting and civil disobedience have tended to be confined to the communities on the receiving end of police violence and racism. Such, for example, was the case during the long hot summer of 1967, the Rodney King riots of 1992, and more recently in Ferguson, Missouri, 2014, after the police shooting of Michael Brown Jr. By contrast, the spontaneous uprising of 2020 has affected every corner of the United States, as well as dozens of cities internationally. Protesters of every race and ethnicity have been motivated by revulsion at yet another murder of an unarmed black man by police, but also, more broadly, by the widespread injustices and rampant inequalities that workers experience under capitalism, made glaringly acute by the onset of the 2020 Great Capitalist Economic Depression. A study carried out by sociologists from the University of Maryland found that white Americans made up 65% of protesters in Washington, 61% of protesters in New York, and 53% of protesters in Los Angeles. Proling has indicated that the protesters are overwhelmingly supported in their actions against police violence by wide-ranging sections of American society. The emergence of a multiracial rebellion is a new development, showing what appears to be a dawning awareness within the US working class of a shared common interest. This is bad news for the US ruling class, which everywhere attempts to divide workers on racial and ethnic lines in order to obscure the fundamental class issues that capitalism creates. This time, it hasn't worked. The international spread of the rebellion gives further credence to the idea that this is more than a race riot focused on upon a single issue. In more than 60 countries, workers joining the Black Lives Matter protests may be fighting injustices caused by their own ruling classes, but the common denominator remains capitalism. Upsticks in revolutionary cycles often begin with simple demands. In this instance, justice for George Floyd. Outraged at ongoing police tyranny, oppression and murder is the spark, but not the ultimate cause of civil unrest. Deeper issues are not hard to discern, as multiple crises are currently converging upon the United States. The government's incompetent management of the COVID-19 crisis has led to at least 116,000 American deaths. In addition, 40 million are newly unemployed and therefore also adding to the significant numbers without health insurance, with 16 million of these jobs losses expected to be permanent. Rebellions or uprisings, depending on the nomenclature you prefer, are by their very nature chaotic, sporadic and, at some level, politically unsophisticated. Much has been made by bourgeois politicians and the media about violence. Destruction of property and the looting of goods are, of course, features of all spontaneous uprisings. However, there is a critical difference which must be acknowledged between the violence of the oppressors and the reaction of the oppressed. 
In reality, the damage caused by protesters looting and arson pales into insignificance when one considers that during the three months of the pandemic, whilst millions of workers have been facing terrible hardships, a select few amongst the billionaire class have increased their wealth by $434 billion. There can be no question of who is really doing the looting. Whilst it's probable that this particular rebellion will fizzle out, being a spontaneous movement lacking direction and the necessary conscious and organised working class political leadership, this does not detract from the main character of the events, namely that they are a justified revolt against police killings and repression, racism and poverty. By taking part, workers will have learnt important practical political lessons about their power as a class, seeing how they were able to act with relative impunity when they acted together, shutting down cities and burning down police precincts. Had such a movement been nurtured correctly with conscious revolutionary leadership, it would pose a genuine threat to the US monopoly capitalist political system, something of which the ruling class is very well aware. There is palpable fear amongst the US ruling class that this rebellion could be sustained, threatening the peace and stability, or rather the veiled but profound and sustained lawful violence of the US state machine which allows capitalism not only to loot from the American people but also from peoples in all corners of the earth. In this context, we can see that all actions the ruling class takes into in relation to the civil unrest are aimed at nullifying any threat to capitalism. The two obvious avenues for this are the granting of concessions to and the sowing of divisions amongst the working class. Concessions are at all times carefully calculated to deceive the workers into discontinuing the class struggle and are already in effect. After many decades of almost complete impunity, police officers in the US are suddenly being held accountable for their actions. As previously mentioned, the police officers involved in the death of Mr. Floyd have all been sacked and are facing criminal charges. Another fatal police shooting of a black man, Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta, Georgia, on Friday the 12th of June, has been deemed an unnecessary use of lethal force and resulted in the immediate dismissal and a murder charge for the police officer who fired the shots, as well as a resignation of the police commissioner. This is entirely uncharacteristic of the usual due process of American law and entirely a result of the current political climate. In Minneapolis, lawmakers have voted to disband the entire police department and to provide a new public safety system. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio is pr promising to divert police department funding into youth and social services. Across the USA, at both state and city level, chokeholds are either being banned or reviewed as a part of police reforms. Anyone who is familiar with the disbanding of the Special Patrol Group in Britain following the police murder at the hands of New Zealand-born teacher and anti-racist activist Blair Peach in Southall in 1979 and its reconstitution as the equally violent and unaccountable Territorial Support Group of, of Riot Police will view such measures with the scepticism they deserve. In a cringe-inducing piece of theatre, Democratic Party leaders Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer took the knee at the Capitol's Emancipation Hall wearing stoles 
made of kente cloth, a Ghanaian textile used by many black Americans to show pride in and awareness of their African heritage, supposedly to show their opposition to systemic racism in America. With pressure building for a major change in the USA, Democrats and Republicans have been vying to propose various cosmetic changes to the policing system, hoping this will be enough to dampen the anger of the workers. Whilst we welcome all concessions forced from the ruling class by workers' struggle, police reforms under the Ancien Regime are unlikely to make much difference to the lives of working people. The fundamental purpose of the police is to maintain the status quo and protect the private property of the rich. The violent response of US police to largely peaceful protests shows that the rule of law is conditional on workers accepting their place in the capitalist order and will invariably be suspended if they begin to seriously threaten existing social and property relations. In addition to making largely cosmetic concessions, the key tactic of our rulers is to neutralize any potential revolutionary sting to reframe both the rebellion and the police violence that sparked it as being solely about race and nothing to do with class. It is obvious that racism was involved in the killing of George Floyd. The police are recruited from reactionary sections of the privileged and politically backward workers, wrongly referred to as the US middle class, and have been taught to hate and despise the poor and oppressed. But the police are not primarily an instrument of racial oppression, but an instrument of class rule. Racism is but one weapon, albeit a central one, in the arsenal of the US bourgeois state. It is not without reason that Malcolm X stated when speaking at the Oxford Union on the 3rd of December 1964 that he was speaking, quote, as a black man from America, which is a racist society. No matter how much you hear it talk about democracy, it's as racist as South Africa or as racist as Portugal or as racist as any other racialist society on this earth. The only difference between it, the USA and South Africa, South Africa preaches separation and practices separation. America pre preaches in integration and practices segregation. This is the only difference. They don't practice what they preach, whereas South Africa preaches and practices the same thing. I have more respect for a man who lets me know where he stands, even if he's wrong, than the one who comes up like an angel and is nothing but a devil." Unquote. The US civil rights struggle that has been going on for well over a century, in which Malcolm X participated in the 1960s, has clearly changed US society to a degree. Lynching is no longer prevalent, outside the state-sanctioned murders committed by the police, but that struggle is very far from complete, and moreover, cannot be completed under the conditions of economic exploitation and disparity that persist, and in fact, are more flagrant now than at any previous time. The persisting and prevalent racism in US society is reflected in the economic, educational and health disparity of the black and Latino communities. The prevalence of residual racism also allows the state to advance a narrative about the recent BLM unrest aimed at sowing division in the ranks of the protesters and more fundamentally among the wider US working class along racial lines. As has historically been the case when the US state has had to respond to demands for racial equality, the violent black male narrative so often invoked by the police to justify their everyday violence has been discarded. Instead, 
black protesters are described as peaceful and legitimate, while their white counterparts are portrayed as violent agitators who have come from the outside. Every attempt is made to prevent white and black workers from making common cause and identifying themselves as workers facing the same class enemy. In Detroit, Michigan, police chief James Craig made thinly veiled comments on Facebook livestream about white protesters, quote, You know, I love this community and we work very well with this community and we know that the individuals from outside the city of Detroit who converged at the protest location don't represent this city. They're not from this city, unquote, he said. And so, quote, I'm just asking for all Detroiters to continue to support us. Let's peacefully protest, but outside of that, we are not going to tolerate it. We're not going to tolerate criminal acts, unquote. In Atlanta, Georgia, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms denounced a very diverse crowd for violence in a 31st of May interview with NBC, adding, quote, What I know in Atlanta is that this protest, even from a physical standpoint, didn't look like our normal protests, unquote. To reinforce the message that black and white workers do not belong together, black separatists are being given platforms to reinforce schisms within the working class through the promotion of racial politics. In a piece in The Nation titled, There is only one possible conclusion, White America likes its killer cops, author Ellie Mistel blamed all white people for racist police murders, asserting that they either openly or silently support law enforcement killers and are therefore responsible for the deaths of black Americans. The police are never going to voluntarily stop killing black and brown people. The killings will continue until the majority of white people in this country make the killings stop. The police work for white people, and they know it. White people know it too, deep down. White people know exactly whom the police are supposed to protect and serve, and they damn well know it's not black and brown people." Unquote. Historical figures involved in barbarous acts such as slavery and colonialism have become the target of the official narrative, with statues and memorials removed at breakneck speed by protesters and authorities alike, not only in America, but also in Britain, Belgium, New Zealand and elsewhere. We are not opposed to such actions. We are very far from glorifying the historical heroes of imperialism, the wealthy public benefactors, who, having practiced their policies of rapacious greed, accumulating vast fortunes from the exploitation of the labouring masses, and by looting foreign lands, trading in opium and human flesh, then sprinkled a few coins of largest on public works to immortalise themselves. Whether major historical figures, the looters of entire continents like Rhodes and Clive, or minor slave drivers like Edward Colson, we hold no brief for them, but merely note that they are long dead. By all means, we should reevaluate our history, as it is part of understanding our present. But then, the really glaring question presents itself, why is present-day imperialism not receiving such scrutiny? Meanwhile, Capitalist businesses and institutions are jumping on the Black Lives Matter bandwagon, distracting workers with platitudes and tokenism as they rush to advertise their anti-racist credentials. The US Navy and Marines, without pausing for breath in their per prosecution of imperialist wars all over the globe, have miraculously wiped their slate clean by prohibiting in any way anachronistic display of the Confederate battle flag. 
the NFL National Football League, which famously banned its players from kneeling during the national anthem to highlight racial injustice, has now scurried to apologise for that decision. Big businesses like Amazon, Apple and Spotify are all seeking to distract attention from their unscrupulous business practices, including the intense sweating of their lowest paid workers by joining the side of the angels on the race question. That this movement can be so easily co-opted by institutions and big business shows how unthreatening culture wars are to the continued rule of the money bags. What is required is not more culture wars, but the vigorous prosecution of the class war. The crucial lesson that all sections of the working class must learn is that the real source of our modern misery and frustration is the capitalist system of production. This system is kept in place by the hirelings of a handful of billionaires who grow richer by the hour while pressing down hard on those who work to create those riches. As the economic crisis, exacerbated by the COVID-19 health crisis, threatens the profits of the billionaires, they are crushing workers under their oppressive boot ever harder, reducing to a minimum and below not only workers' wages, but also the social benefits they need, whilst proving incapable of providing work for the many millions in desperate need of decent employment or healthcare for the millions threatened by the virus. Workers must welcome all movements to address historical injustice, and there can be no doubt that the extent of the racism in the US is so pernicious as to sap the unity and vitality of the US working class. But the solution to racism for the working class must always be to demand equality and greater cooperation in the common struggle to end capitalism. Marx long ago proclaimed, that there can be no freedom for the white labourer where in the black it is branded. Our slogan must be, workers of all countries, black and white, unite and fight. Socialism will not come riding in on the back of any spontaneous protest movement, no matter how just its cause, but will be fought for tooth and nail by a working class, black and white, that has learnt to unite behind a clearly articulated programme and an all-embracing political leadership that is capable of forging real unity among the ranks of the historically divided working class. At top of that agenda must be the overthrow of capitalism. That is the historical task that awaits the proletariat of all skin colours.